You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko, and my co-dog, Wrigley. Yes, so Wrigley's uh, sitting here, wants to be part of the podcast, and he's been pretty quiet. Uh, The first time I heard him bark just a minute ago, it was just a friendly little remind us that he's here, bark, (laughs) because he had surgery. Yes, Wrigley had a, a bowel resection, which is where they cut out a section of his bowel, which doesn't sound that bad until you take into account the fact that he is pushing 15 or maybe over 15. We're not really sure. And also that he has kidney disease and mitral valve disease. It was incredibly high risk. And the average lifespan of a uh, schnauzer or a terrier is... 11 or 13 years or something like that. Not Wrigley. Wrigley's going to live forever. Well, surgery has been done and he seems to be recovering. This is now Friday morning and he's doing pretty well. Yep. He had a surgery on Monday and uh, they kicked him out of the hospital. They said, oh, given his age, he's going to be three nights here. And after a day and a half, they kicked him out because he was so ticked off at them wanting to leave. They were like, he's recovering just fine. (laughs) Well, he doesn't seem to be angry now that he's at home. He was apparently uh, angry on day two at the hospital. And I understand that. Uh, Having spent time in the hospital myself, I want to leave too. Um, Maybe he wasn't satisfied with the food. In any event, he is uh, (laughs) at home with a cone over his head. Yep. And recovering, a little bit subdued, but uh, seems to be doing just fine. Yeah. So apologies if you hear him. He gets a free pass this week. So let's get on to our topics. Yes, lots to talk about. Um, I thought very briefly, because it's timely, we would talk about the uh, Surrey police transition decision. And has it come out? It, yes, it came out. Probably well, I heard on the radio this morning that it was coming. So Yeah, while you were coming here, I think it came out because the, uh, the government has uh, found that the Surrey police will continue. But Brenda Locke is not taking it lying down. There is apparently in the report a pathway to keep the RCMP in Surrey, a number of recommendations that were made um, by Minister Farnworth, and she says she's going to be following through on those. So we'll see. So what does this mean? This means that the Surrey (laughs) police are going to be the Surrey police and that the RCMP are going to be, to some extent, in Surrey? This means that the Surrey police maybe will continue to be the Surrey police, but maybe they'll get to keep the RCMP. So it seems like we are no further along than we were yesterday. Well, we have a lot of integrated police forces in the lower mainland. We've got uh, these BC Highway Patrol, which is made up of officers from uh, municipal detachments and RCMP. We have uh, the integrated uh, homicide investigation team, I hit, which uh, is a group of officers who investigate things all over the province and uh, apparently sometimes really botch the investigations, according to the Supreme Court of Canada today. Um, and uh, <laughs> not a driving law case. Not a driving bad. law case. Actually, it had quite significant applicability to driving law cases, though. Well, that's the, for analysis for another day, I think. But um, so it'll be interesting to see 
We have observed um, some real problems out of Surrey in the transition in the last couple of years because you cannot tell who is doing what in a police report, whether or not it's the Surrey police or the RCMP in Surrey. And so uh, it would be nice to at least have this thing settled. Yes. Anyway, um, uh, too soon to tell what this actually means for the people of Surrey and more importantly, the roads of Surrey. Surrey police, I think, have about 200 officers when they need 2,000 or something like that. Yeah. And I mean, Surrey is, again, uh, like the fastest growing community in British Columbia. So um, policing, big issue. Uh, and uh, young population and lots of people driving um, not well. Yes. Anyway, um, moving on to actual driving law-related issues, I thought that I would talk first about a proposal that is gaining traction from the mayor of Barrier, B.C. Yes, you sent me this, and um, it's um, <laughs> one more of those things that uh, is um, where you're being monitored in the world. So please lay it out. So basically, the mayor of Barrier is putting forward a proposal um, asking for mandatory requirements that drivers of semi-trucks or large combined commercial vehicles have to have dash cams installed. Um, Ward Steamer is his name, and he says that uh, it would make truck drivers more accountable for their actions um, particularly after a lot of collisions that we saw over the last year involving commercial vehicles throughout the winter. Um, and this would allow um, the truck uh, trucking industry to better comply with road uh, rules, knowing that if there's a collision, their actions are going to be captured on camera, scrutinized and monitored. So this comes at an interesting time because we have this Bill 23 uh, which has been introduced um, and is going to pass, which amends the Motor Vehicle Act in BC and creates an obligation for uh, uh, heavy-duty trucks and the two highest classes, so semi-trucks and the ones just below them, I think they're like class four, class five heavy-duty trucks, to have speed limiters in them. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not clear what the speed limiters will be set at, although I'm assuming it's probably 120 or something like that. Um, and, um, that the police can pull over a truck to ensure there's a speed limiter in there to ensure it's functioning and to look at any records that it's got and potentially hang on to the truck for that purpose. And I mean, if you were going to implement, um, a requirement for dash cams, it would have been the time to do it would have been to put it in this legislation at the same time. Yeah. But there's a lot of things behind it. I mean, the first thing that strikes me is the privacy issue, uh, you know, Truck drivers are, are basically living in their trucks. They, you know, spend their off hours in their trucks. Yeah, but your dash cam's going to be pointing out, not in. Sure. Okay. That's issue number one. Uh, issue number two, it's kind of de dehumanizing to be monitored like that all the time. And I don't necessarily want to be monitored by every other truck that's on the road. Privacy issue there for me and my vehicle. Do I want there you to don't be a record? privacy rights when you're driving on public roadways in the location of your vehicle, the ex exterior of your vehicle, your license plate. Pri privacy law in British Columbia has very clearly 
indicated not only is there one-party consent to recordings in public places, which all roads and highways are, but secondly, that you have a diminished expectation generally in Canada of privacy in a motor vehicle in any event, that driving is a highly regulated activity. I'm not talking about the law, Kyle. I'm talking about how I feel about this, you know, being one more thing that's monitoring my location at all times. Here it is, folks. Paul's admission that he drafts like a maniac on the Coca-Cola. No, maybe I, you know, <laughs> not because I want to dump a body or something, but the, the point is I don't necessarily want people to have a record that I was somewhere. You know, if I decide to go to Princess Auto in the middle of the afternoon, I don't want people to have a record that I'm driving out of the, you know, Princess Auto parking lot, perhaps. So there's that. But the other issue that gets me is, of course, we have basically there's the the, the two big ends of the trucking industry. There's the owner operators, which are, are fewer and fewer all the time because of the difficulties in being an owner operator. And then there's the big trucking companies, which I will tell you, they make a lot, a lot, a lot of money. Like they're, they're hugely wealthy. Uh, they don't pay their drivers very well. Um, at least that's the, uh, you know, what clients are telling us, but they're hugely wealthy, very successful. If you want to make money, uh, you know, create a gigantic trucking company. If you want to uh, make more money, buy one uh, if you're already that wealthy. But the point here is that it is a costly obligation for the owner-operator and a minor inconvenience for the big trucking companies to put in uh, dash cams in all their trucks. You can get a dash cam on Amazon for $40. That is not a costly obligation. You, Plus, it's tax deductible for the owner-operator. They are going to require that your dash cam always be operable and that you are, anytime you can be pulled over, that you've got it and that it's recorded in the cloud and that they can recover it because otherwise, what's the point of having it? If record it to an S. They could, they could do it in almost the same way that they are doing the... Um, speed limiters, where police officers by legislation are given the right to search the vehicle without warning, to seize the speed limiter data. Similarly, they could be given the right to enter the vehicle, to take the dash cam, to inspect the dash cam to make sure that it's running, and to take the SD card or whatever chip is inside it recording and to download the data off it without a warrant. I'd my little, you know, dash cam that I buy on top of my speed limiter that I've got to get installed as my owner operator of a, of a logging truck. Mm -hmm. And now I get pulled over and my SD card's full or my little cable doesn't, didn't plug in and make a perfect connection with the truck at that moment. Next thing you know, I've got a ticket. So yeah, yeah. You're a commercial driver driving a commercial vehicle, you're required to do a pre-trip inspection, which would include then requiring you to check that the SD card had sufficient memory for your trip, to check that the cable was properly connected in the same way that you check that your brakes are functioning and that your lights are working and that all of your appropriate signage is on the truck. This is not imposing a burden on the average person. This is imposing a burden on an employee in a highly regulated safety critical in industry that causes millions of collisions every year. Slippery slope. Everybody in their vehicle, diminished expectation of privacy, cause lots of collisions every year. So do pickup trucks, so do Dodge Ram trucks. Every Dodge Ram, that's the next thing. Look, I'm ordinarily against dash cams. You've heard me, I did that TikTok video about why you shouldn't get a dash cam in your vehicle and people like came for me in the comments. Flipped out. If I'm innocent, I should be, I'm, I'll be fine. Well, you know, yeah. the thing is, 
but this is this is a different situation. You know, when you have, you know, an 11,000 kilogram vehicle hurtling towards you, um, coming up from behind on the Coquihalla at 140 kilometers an hour, that's terrifying. I've seen commercial vehicles on the highways in British Columbia throughout my many drives to go to various courthouses driving in extremely bad ways. That conduct should be regulated. And I know the industry is partly to blame for it. The industry itself is to blame because there's all sorts of pressure to meet deadlines and to, you know, to do things that are illegal, to get deliveries places faster, to fulfill orders, to carry more than your axles should be loaded up on. I know all of those pressures exist, but this is one way to keep the industry accountable. And remember that for not the owner operators, but for the fleets, if there are tickets issued to the drivers, those also count against the company points. Well, I will tell you right now that you will have support generally of the trucking, big trucking companies, uh, because they're more than happy to see more ways that they can spy on their drivers. Uh, they've got GPS, they're monitoring the trucks all the time. Speed limiters are going to be a fairly easy thing for them to do. Um, having a camera that can monitor what their driver's doing, again, uh, it's another thing that's um, that they'll be happy to, to have to be able to monitor the drivers. Sadly, we'll have drivers who make a minor miscalculation that's not necessarily unsafe because there's nobody around them, and they'll end up fired for something that's on their video. Um, and it'll be used down the road just to to terminate drivers by going back and maintaining a record over 10 years and saying, oh, look, here on uh, June 16th, um, you know, he crossed over the double solid line at one point. Of course, there's no traffic there. And that's uh, that'll be used in an employment circumstance. And, I, you know, you can just see how it's going to play out. Well, the B.C. trucking industry seems to be mildly supportive, lukewarm support for this. Um, the BC Trucking Industry spokesperson has come out and said that many drivers and um, companies are putting dash cams in their vehicles already because it's to their advantage to help settle insurance claims uh, when there are accidents. Um, and you and I also have seen numerous cases where truckers have been using their dash cam footage um, when calling in impaired drivers on the highways that are not in commercial vehicles. And that dash cam footage forms part of the evidence at trial. That's true. We're going to have a lot of truckers who are going to end up having to be witnesses at trial in impaired driving cases. And uh, there'll be a big question as to the reliability of that dash cam footage when it's so easily fake now in deep fakes. Oh, yeah. So well, I just posted a TikTok today about a fake dash cam from a police vehicle um, with a, like a... Wasn't a police vehicle. It wasn't a fake police vehicle. vehicle. It was all faked. It was all staged, but people were following for it. Well, this is something I've wanted to write about for a long time, and that is uh, the deep fake problem and the issue with dash cams now that we have AI that can do such great deep fakes that mm -hmm. we are going to see the question about video, which has been, video has been like easily admissible in court for a long time. Very few people are questioning it or have really thought about how they could pick it apart because everybody's looking at it saying, you know, what's the motivation? Why would anybody put the effort into altering the CCTV video? Um, it's reasonably likely that it's reliable. So we're not going to make much of an inquiry into it. Well, now, uh, you know, when you weigh the motivation for somebody to alter it versus the difficulty, uh, it's, uh, it's very easy now to alter video. It's getting incredibly easy to alter video. Yep. Um, and, um, and so that is going to be a really live issue 
over the next uh, 20 years before the robots take over. All right, moving on to our next topic. I thought that we would go hyper-local and talk about Vancouver, City of Vancouver, and parking. Because as you and I both know, as people who have to travel around Vancouver going to courthouses and registries and media interviews and all sorts of things, parking in Vancouver is stupid expensive. There are obviously the commercial lots where you end up paying sometimes $25 plus for a day of parking. Um, There are also the city-owned lots where, for some reason, the city charges a convenience fee for paying with a credit card but doesn't accept any payment method other than credit card or their app, which charges you a convenience fee to use the app. I don't get it. Um, But this is the city of Vancouver for you. If you ever wanted to hate a city, here's a good reason. That was a good reason. That's a good reason, yeah. But you can pretty much hate any city that you're in because the civic governments are terrible, except Clearwater. Shout out to Clearwater. And Port Coquitlam. And Port Coquitlam. Shout out to Brad West. Brad West is a great guy. Should be mayor of Canada. (laughs) Is that a position? (laughs) Anyway. Future potential premier. Yeah. Um... But the point that I was making was the city of Vancouver has voted to change the parking fees in Chinatown. Because right now in the Chinatown area, which has been really struggling to attract people to it because of all of this whole discussion of it's not safe to go downtown and and the, you know. There's lots of issues with Chinatown. It's it's the downtown east side. Uh, The Chinese community has... uh, Largely, a lot of people moved to Richmond. That's it was a long historic um, Chinese community there, and um, a lot of people who are of Chinese ethnic origin are either just so totally integrated in society that they're not self segregating into a community as it was sort of once happened. Um, it's. Uh, it, I don't know that I agree with that. I think Chinatown is still a vibrant community. It's a very vibrant with. community, but it's not the same vibrant community it was at different times in Vancouver. This is the perception issue. So the city of Vancouver is trying to work with Chinatown to bring the people back to Chinatown, the people that go to Chinatown to spend money, that purchase things at the shops, that eat at the restaurants, that participate in the culture of Chinatown, the tourism that happens in Chinatown in Vancouver, one of the oldest Chinatowns in North America. Significant Chinatown with some really important history. So uh, they've decided to take the parking in Chinatown, the meter parking, the street parking, which ranges from currently $1 per hour to $5 per hour, depending on what street you're on and what part of Chinatown. And they're just going to flatten it out to try and encourage people to $2 an hour. And so it's going to get more expensive in some, in some spots and a lot cheaper in other spots. Um, and that's interesting because it'll be an issue of demand because there's some areas, the $5 an hour places are the places where everybody wants to park. And the $1 an hour places are places where people are concerned their car is going to get broken into and they have a long way to walk to the thing that they want to get to. So, I mean, part of the whole idea of the, the, the magic behind parking rates is supply and demand for the location. And that's the price goes up when the demand goes up to try and reduce the demand and squeeze every penny out of people. Um, but the, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's just one more thing that they're trying to do, but they make these changes and then you never know whether or not there's been any, any positive, positive result because 
who's going to conduct the study. I also have like a real question of like whether changing the parking rates is really like on the spectrum of things that would be necessary to do to attract more tourists and locals to Chinatown and attract their money. Is changing the cost of parking really the way to do it? Like, I feel like governments always do this where they look for the low-hanging fruit. And unfortunately, it's laws around driving issues that are low-hanging fruit. They're politically low-hanging fruit. You know, they can say, we're saving people money. This is great for the community. We're not addressing any of the underlying systemic issues with a lack of housing and social supports that are really causing a lot of the people to not want to go to Chinatown right now. Um, But guess what? You can park your car there for $3 cheaper in some spaces. Yes, um, it's the driving law scapegoat. Those are all valid points. And the driving law scapegoat is, yes, a, a common scapegoat. And uh, when it comes time to raise more money, they, the uh, methods that we are taxed are very often related to driving. And parking is paying to use a space where in many locations you're using a space on the street for nothing, like in front of your house most of the time. Um, and again, this is an issue of controlling demand. So they're trying to create more demand for the location. And I, I get it. This is just the only thing that they've come up with, which is kind of too bad, but you know, what are you going to put into it for resources? What can you afford to put into, um, making that community better for resources as a city? I mean, I think you have to recognize and people need to recognize that the people who generally get into politics, and there's you know some people who are very clear exceptions to this, but who get into politics generally just want to do something good for their community, and they're trying to come up with good ways. And we've seen governments of left and right-leaning motivations, both in both cases, get elected and and in our city and re-elected in the case of uh, Gregor Robertson, um, with the really express intention and genuine desire to deal with the problems that we have with homelessness, um, and drug addiction and, and, um, property crime in these regions. And every one of them, you know, put various different resources and effort into it, um, with really, well, I think everybody would agree, not satisfactory results. Yes. Remember the BC liberals, this was with Rich Coleman, went and bought eight gigantic apartment buildings and converted them and hotels and converted them into, into shelter spots. And again, we're back needing more shelter spots. Well. Not shelter spots, homes. They were homes they were created at. It's all something that I think everybody should take a moment to think about. Maybe a McGracken moment. Ladies and gentlemen, let loose the law and justice cracking Eric McGrackin! Welcome to the McGracken Moment. Let's talk about examinations for discovery in an ICBC injury claim and the scope of pre-existing injury exploration. So 
Uh, I'm talking about the old system. There's thousands and thousands of these cases still out there. These are tort cases where a crash victim is suing the person that injured them. Useful reasons were published this month talking about the scope of examination for discovery questions when it comes to pre-existing conditions. Now, there is a ton of case law when it comes to record production. How many of your pre-existing doctor records do you have to share? This has been fought over thousands of times in chambers over the years, and we have some good feedback. But on an examination for discovery, when you're asked face-to-face, -face, under oath about your pre-existing conditions, there's not a whole lot of case law. So this case sheds some light on this. Now, it's a decision um, published last month by the BC Supreme Court. And what happened was the plaintiff had some pre-existing injuries and the defense lawyers started asking questions about those. Plaintiff's counsel said, I'll let you ask questions for up to two years before the crash. And the defense lawyer said, no, I want to ask questions for the totality of the plaintiff's injuries. I want to go back over their whole lifetime. Plaintiff's counsel said, no way. So off to chambers they went, and defense counsel brought an application basically saying they should be unrestricted in what questions they could ask. The application was dismissed. Now, it was dismissed for technical grounds because there weren't specific questions that were objected to. They just wanted carte blanche permission to go back 40 years. And the court said, that's not the way the rules work. Ask your questions, get your objections, and I could review them question by question. But leaving that technicality aside, the court made it pretty clear that carte blanche for a lifetime of pre-existing injury questioning is probably out of bounds. Here's what Justice Tyndale had to say. The difficulty I'm having with the defendant's application is the broad nature of the requested order that would compel the plaintiff to answer all questions regarding her medical history without any restriction to a two-year period prior to the crash. Uh, end quote there. So the court basically said, look, that's really broad. That's really open-ended. Ask your questions. We could decide it bit by bit, but no, you can't go and ask questions forever about pre-existing injuries. You're probably out of bounds. So this is useful feedback for us folks in the civil litigation injury business when it comes to counsel exploring our clients' pre-existing injuries. Thank you. All right. Well, that was a really interesting breakdown from Eric on the sort of decision of uh, the court recently on um, examinations for discovery and also the importance of them, I think, in the civil process. Uh, speaking of things that are important, Paul, if you've spent a couple hundred thousand dollars on your car, would, would it be important to you? Well, as you know, Kyla, I'm not the type of person who would spend <laughs> that kind of money on their car. Uh, I drive a 1972 international pickup truck that is just an unrestored manual truck. So, and a 1953 Buick, which I've reinsured for the summer. So my cars are not worth a lot of money, but tell me about, uh, tell me about this person who I assume is the, the ridiculous driver of the week, the week, the week, the week, the week. A surprising bestseller, the pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination, the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. Yes. Uh, so this is 
an unknown individual uh, who well, had he's he's known to somebody. No people people know. I'll know him. Um, a Lamborghini Aventador is that how you say it? Aventador. I, you know, uh, I I'm too poor. To I've say never that. known since <laughs> Countach or Countach the 1980s Lamborghini. How to pronounce a Lam a Lamborghini or a Lamborghini? Yeah. So okay. So a very all, expensive all I know is a, a very Lamborghini. Ex very expensive Volkswagen. Yeah. Owned Lamborghini is owned by Audi. You're owned by Volkswagen. Half the parts are Volkswagen. So this. Lamborghini was being driven in North Vancouver in Clayton Heights. Um, and the driver somehow managed to smash the Lamborghini into a retaining wall. And as you do when you smash up your $300,000 car, you just leave it. <laughs> well, this one's broken. Guess I'll go buy a new one. Well, most of the time when people leave the scene like that, they've been drinking and they're concerned about, uh, about, um. Oh, it's a $600,000 Lamborghini. It's concerned about apprehension for that. Um, I remember years ago, there was a like story of a guy in a Ferrari who, who got it stuck in an underpass somehow and ran and said he ran to, had a meeting he had to go to. This was at Toronto or something, but of course that, uh, leaving the scene, um, and in those circumstances more often or very often, not more often, but very often, uh, somebody wanting to hide evidence of something. Yeah. Um, and more often I would say in those circumstances, it's of drinking, but, um. Here's the thing though. Not a lot of people own a Lamborghini Aventador and so or are friends with somebody who owns one. Everybody on that person's street knows that car because <laughs> they're noisy. And they might hate the guy, stand but, out. but they, and they stand out and the people who work with them know who it is. Um, uh, but the question there was like, was there was, was there an obligation to stay? I mean, it doesn't sound like it was a running away circumstance. Um, you know, was there property damage other than to the person's vehicle? Yeah. I mean, that's the real question because the BC motor vehicle, well, obviously the criminal code doesn't require you to remain at the scene unless you're involved in a collision with a person or a vehicle. The Motor Vehicle Act requires you to remain at the scene to render all reasonable assistance and to report to the owner of any property, any property damage. But if it's a retaining wall, maybe some rocks are scuffed. Your car's obviously sustained the brunt of it. Who do you even report to? And what do you report? And and you're going to want to have it towed by a, you know, a flat deck truck. So you might have a, you might have a three hour wait. So you might have to go home and get your, your, call your Lamborghini service to send their flat deck to pick up your vehicle. So it, it might be something completely innocent in this case. Um, and I really but, don't know. But it's still ridiculous because who smashes up a $600,000 car? Well, lots of people. Lots and of people. it leaves, leaves it behind. But lots of people do. That's the thing. Like I had a friend who worked at the Lamborghini dealer and he jokingly said one day with every Lamborghini they sell, they get to sell a replacement a few weeks later because people <laughs> buy those cars. They're hugely powerful. They're uh, very expensive. They uh, want to show them off. They try to drive them uh, a little bit to uh, beyond their capacity on roads that are not racetracks and they end up destroying them. And then of course we have government insurance in BC. So we, as, uh, insurers in, in British Columbia get to pay for it. And remember Christy Clark years ago said, 
we're going to not insure these high performance vehicles. That's where we're going to let the private insurers come in for the uh, for the collision insurance on these high performance vehicles. Well, that never happened. And that never happened. But they did create an insurance premium for cars over $100,000. Sure, but that captures a lot of people. Yeah. Especially now that car prices have increased so much since the beginning of the pandemic and shortages of chips. And now, you know, buying a, a new Chevy pickup truck is $110,000, right? What? Yeah, they're ridiculous. Oh my God, I'm never buying another car again. I know, I'm, <laughs> I looking, at, I'm looking at my 1972 International here out of the window of your, uh, of your home. And uh, I can tell you that, uh, you know, there's some, uh, some reason for me not to replace it. Okay, well, that's our podcast, Paul. Oh, thanks, Kyla. This was... Uh, enjoyable discussion. If you have any driving law-related issues, you can find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.